Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. All right, today's podcast idea came from another dog training podcast, which is called uh, Canine Conversations. It's a podcast that I was interviewed for, gosh, um, I don't know, back back when they started it, several months ago, maybe at the beginning of the year. Um, anyway, I will have the link to that podcast in the show notes for today's episode, but it's a pet dog training podcast, um, and they covered... It has three hosts, basically, and they're all pet dog trainers, and they talked about if you could teach every dog five behaviors, what would your top five behaviors be? And it was really cool because they didn't review each other's behaviors. They just kind of went for it and each read their, um, their five behaviors that they came up with independently. And I loved it so much that I wanted to do my own. And of course, it's going to have the Cog Dog Radio twist. So it's going to be five behaviors that I wish all sport dogs knew. So it's the five behaviors sport edition over on Cog Dog Radio today. So these are in no particular order, but I'm just going to go through the top five behaviors that I came up with that if I could wave my magic wand and have every dog know uh, tomorrow that was involved in sports, I would. So the first one is waiting your turn. And I'm actually going to be recording a podcast soon all about FOMO, fear of missing out, because I get more questions about this than probably anything else. Our dogs, they want to play the game and they have a hard time waiting to play the game. And spoiler alert, we also have a hard time waiting to play the game, which is why we maybe don't do the best job teaching our dogs to wait um, deliberately. And it's something that has got to be deliberately trained. This is a behavior that has to be installed. It's not something that any of your dogs are going to come with, especially dogs who you purchased for sport reasons um, or adopted for sport reasons. There are plenty of dogs who are um, really casual about everything and they're very patient and um, fine just hanging out. There are people like that too. I'm not one of them. Um, In fact, I will avoid a line at all costs, pretty much, and I would rather drive an extra hour and not sit in traffic than sit in traffic for for less time. So I would be one of those dogs that was screaming, barking, could not wait um, for my turn. And the other thing that we need to recognize is that dogs don't understand that waiting is a thing. They don't understand that there is a turn. They don't understand that there is a run order and that we are standing here for a reason um, and not just, you know, because humans are dumb and slow moving. So number one would be waiting your turn. The second one I came up with is kind of generic, but it's just, it's reinforce our skills. You guys would be amazed how many of your problems would be solved if you just trained your dog some nice, clean reinforcer skills. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they understand when a toy or a cookie, and I'm just gonna, I know that there are more reinforcers than that, but in sports, we're pretty much using food or a toy. So 
they know when a f piece of food or a toy is live for reinforcement. So meaning they understand a cue that you give them that means, okay, now go eat the food or okay, now bite the toy. When it comes to toys, they also need to understand the flip side. They need to understand when to give the toy back to start the next repetition, which is why toy training is inherently a little bit more complicated. Um, than food training. But if we just taught our dogs when they're going to get paid and how they're going to get paid, a lot of confusion that I see and a lot of the problematic behaviors that I see would be eradicated right away. Um, if your dog can't operate on an agility course without becoming frustrated about where his payment is, and you know, hint, if the dog is body slamming you and biting at you, that's about frustration about where his reinforcer is or where his information is. Um, you know, if your dog can't get through a course without doing something like that, probably there's some reinforcer skills that are missing. So really working hard on um, when they're gonna get paid and when they're not, and just teaching that as a, as a general skill surrounding any reinforcer that you plan to use. So having a sophisticated vernacular but with, you, with your dog, between you and your dog, regarding any reinforcers that you plan to use is vital, you guys. So if you wanna use a food robot, so that's a manners minder, treat and train, uh, pet tutor. If you're gonna use a food robot, you need to teach the dog about the food robot, right? Um, also, if you're going to just throw a piece of food on the ground, you wanna talk to them about that. If you're gonna feed them from your hand, they also need to know some stuff about that so they're not just constantly mugging you for the food. Um, and then really, if you're gonna to use toys, they should very, very well understand when to bite it and when to let it go at a, at a minimum. And that stuff should be taught with as little conflict as possible. So number two is reinforcer skills. My next one, number three, is connected walking. And I put connected walking on purpose rather than loose leash walking because I think this is something that is important whether the dog is on a leash or not. The dog should be able to move with you in connection with you from A to B in a lot of complicated spaces, whether there's a leash involved or not. So. Um, if you need a restrictive device, like maybe a head halter to get the dog from A to B in a trial environment, I would say that's fine, you know, kind of early on when the dog's learning about those environments, um, if that's what you need to manage that dog. But for life, to me, that's not sustainable. Um, and I also, generally speaking, I want the dog to be able to move with me off leash from the car to the ring. That's not saying that I do move from the car to the ring off leash, but I don't want the leash to be the only thing connecting us there and connecting us in that time. I also want you to be able to walk in the ring and leave your leash right at the gate. So just drop it right there and move with your dog in total freedom to the start line because that's a consent piece for me. I want the dog fully opting into this run and if you directly, if you take them straight to the line on a, on a tight leash or even a loose leash and you sit their butt down and then you take that leash off and lead out, you have given them very little choice. Um, same goes for small dogs. If you carry them, put them down, put them in a sit and lead out, you've also given them very little choice. So 
trained connected walking dog is looking up occasionally that i'm not i'm not after a formal heads up heel here i am after a dog that is walking with the person from a to b so glancing up at the person not yanking the arm out of the socket not trying to eat everything off the table you just passed by but just you you guys know what it looks like it's a nice kind of loose lead the dog is free to move around but is generally speaking on a walk with the person in the same sense that if you see two humans on a walk together in the park you can tell they're on a walk together they don't need to be attached to each other by a rope for you to be able to tell that. So think of that um, with your dog and now you're seeing connected walking as far as I'm concerned. So that's number three, connected walking. Number four, crate equals rest. Let me sing it from the rooftops. I do not teach my dogs um, fun, exciting, explosive games when it comes to the crate. That is something that I did um, 10-ish years ago, and I've evolved away from it, and I my crate work is better for it. Um, I want the dog to default to a resting position when they're in a crate. I want them to understand when you're in the crate, this is a non-working space. There's no reinforcers to be had. Your only job is to relax and sleep, and I do that a lot with just antecedent arrangement, just only putting them in there when it's time to rest for a nice long period of time um, until I start to see that default rest when I put them in the crate. So important for them when they're traveling, they might be traveling long distances in a car um, or on a plane, and then they probably have to be crated at the venue when they're actually competing. And if they can't sleep in the crate, if they're not resting all day, they're actually going to be too mentally fatigued to perform. So crate equals rest is number four. And then number five is a start button. And that's just a way for the dog to opt into the game. So I want the dog to understand that if they give me a certain behavior, that means that I've been given the green light to start the, to start the game. And I weave layers of consent into all of my training so it's not just about start button behaviors but i want my dog to fully understand when we're looking at agility equipment that they have a clear language that they can use with me that they can do behavior x and then get behavior y out of me and behavior y is going to be starting that course the flip side is that of the start button is that I want them to know that it's a choice. They don't have to give me the start button. It's always up to them to make the game start or not make the game start. Um, that's a newer part of my training in the past about um, five years, um, maybe six years, but it's really become monumentally important for both the dogs I work with who are a little too much little crazy, um, little, you know, very, very excited. The ones that you would never think would opt out of work. It's vital for them. And it's also vital for the, for the dogs that are maybe a little more wallflowery, little sniffy. Um, those are, you know, we refer to those over in my world as the quote unquote hidden potential dogs. Cause that's the name of the course I teach for them. It's important for them too. Um, because the hidden potential types might say, no, thank you. I can't do this today. And the more worked up, those kind of cray-cray types, they, they might say, I really want to, but I just can't because I'm not here right now. And then I'm going to save myself from maybe being bitten or injured in another way. And I'm hopefully going to save the dog from hurting themselves as well. 
So those are my five behaviors. Waiting your turn, reinforcer skills, connected walking, crates equal rest, and the start button. And again, huge shout out to Canine Conversations for this idea. Um, It was fantastic. And you guys should check out that entire podcast, if not just that episode. So now I'm going to wrap it up with two really, really smart Patreon questions. And there's information on joining Patreon, becoming a patron at the bottom of every episode. So make sure that you listen through to the end to get that information if you want it. So first question comes from Kristen. She says, what is the value of using food if the dog works great for toys? This is a really smart question because I am frequently kind of harping on my agility people to use food, to reach for food first, to encourage their dogs to be able to work for food in any kind of environment. And while I am not a person who would bend over backwards to get a dog to work for toys, I am a person who will bend over backwards to get a dog to work for food. And why the heck is that? Actually, making me question it, Kristen, I really appreciate because it helped me to get more clarity in my head about why this is. One of the reasons is if you kind of rewind to my number two uh, top behavior, reinforcer skills, I mentioned that toys are inherently more complicated as a reinforcer than food because the dog has to give it back to you in order to start the next repetition. So that in and of itself makes having clean reinforcer skills surrounding toys a bigger project than it does to have clean reinforcer skills surrounding food. And when I get clients, whether they're my students in my group online courses or in a seminar or private online clients, most of them don't have clean reinforcer skills. Most of them show up needing my help without those. And that's okay, don't expect you guys to have that. It's kind of a newer thing for people to be talking about in dog sports. It's not a newer thing in kind of animal training at large, but it is in dog sports um, in, in a lot of circles and especially in the cultural circle of dog agility, which is where I usually work. Um, We kind of have talked at length about getting dogs to play with toys in dog agility. And I think the pendulum needs to swing the other direction for us to talk more about using food effectively. Because I say it all the time, and it is very true that food can do everything toys can do, and then some, especially in my sport of dog agility. Um, And we have to crawl before we can run. And having clean reinforcer skills around something that the dog actually has to give back to you is a sprint. Whereas having nice, clean food taking skills, that's your crawl. That's where you have to start. So part of it is because of the learning curve for the humans, because I want you to have clean reinforcer skills and I need to start somewhere that doesn't that isn't just inherently conflict laden like toys are because you have to take toys back so we have to start there for the humans that's splitting for humans which I'm a I'm a big fan of and then the other reason is that and again because there's inherent conflict with toys we produce a lot of unhelpful feelings with toys that 
are not going to be present with food because toys are secondary reinforcers. They're not a primary reinforcer. So I don't care how early on in your puppy's life he decided that tugging was um, was the best thing ever. And I don't know when Felix, my own dog, decided that a ball on a rope was life or death. Okay, a life or death proposition in his head is whether or not he's going to get that ball on a rope. Um, I don't know when he decided that, but I know that he wasn't born with it. Because if he were not raised by humans, he would have never seen a ball on a rope and he would have lived his life assuming that he could get food. Ooh, and there you go. That There you have it. Because food is what? A primary reinforcer. Because we all have to have it to live. Which means that it doesn't come with baggage. We put baggage on it. Um, we put baggage on food for our dogs way too much because it's, because we have, I mean, to put it simply, because we have baggage about food, because we all have, um, especially women in our culture, have a lot of baggage when it comes to food, um, because our entire culture is basically telling us not to eat, and we need to eat every day, um, newsflash, multiple times a day, mom, um, <laughs> so, so I want you to be able to use food because it is simply the cleanest, most efficient training reinforcer that we have in our arsenal. And because I can gauge emotions on food better than I can on toys. Um, when I'm talking about sport dogs in particular, especially. So Felix will bite the ball on the rope even if he is uncomfortable, even if he is overwhelmed. Whereas he will not eat in those scenarios. So it is very important for me to ask him to eat in those scenarios so that I know that he is okay. And because I'd like to use both, it's important for him to switch between both. But if you don't need to use both or don't want to use both, then you don't need to teach them the skill of switching between both. I'd still encourage you to do so because it's a smart dog training um, project. It's a smart piece for your dog to have in his foundation. But um, the value of using food is just so that you have access to a clean, non-baggage-laden reinforcer that you can learn to use efficiently and easily, much easier than you can toys. And food inherently is kind of is soothing whereas you know chewing is soothing eating is soothing whereas tug toys inherently kind of the opposite and when people come to me they usually don't need the dog jacked any higher they need the dog to come down a notch to a more kind of thinking level so i'm still kind of working out a lot of my thoughts on this kristen and um i will let you know when i come up with more but those are my initial thoughts Last Patreon question for today is from uh, Litsi. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. She says, what is your recommendation for reducing and then eliminating food dependence uh, for the ring or re reward dependence for the ring? And that's paraphrased because it, it was a longer question that had some kind of personal details about her own situation. So that's paraphrased, but it's essentially how do we move towards that elusive ring performance that does not rely on food. So dog knows the food is not in the ring and dog is giving you a beautiful performance anyway. 
And the way we do that is deliberately. So if your dog can walk into the rally ring, set up at the first cone, look up at you beautifully and take two steps without being fed, great. You've already gotten really far. But if it's by the time you get to the second or the third stanchion um, or station in rally that the dog is starting to sniff and leave, then you know how long the dog can work without reinforcement and you have your starting point. How do we, how we get to the end starting point is simply by paying attention to how long the dog can actually work without the reinforcement and slowly building up that length of time. So you first start by doing what I call reinforcement stashing, which is teaching the dog your stuff is outside of the ring and you're going to be okay because we're going to leave and get it together after you do something for me. And it starts with just, can you walk away from the stash? And if you can, I cue the stash, we go and you eat it. And then it goes to, can you walk in the ring? And then it's, can you do one behavior? Can you do three? It, you just literally have to systematically build it up because what you've done in training is taught them that they're just going to get fed frequently, um, which is an okay thing to do in the early acquisition of your behaviors. And then you need to feed less often. You need to reinforce less often. But you need to do it in a deliberate manner so that your behaviors don't backslide. And how easy this will be for you depends on a couple of factors. Number one, it depends on whether your dog has reinforcer skills to begin with. Because if they do, if you already have a vernacular with them about their reinforcers, they will pick this up really fast. And if you don't, if you're kind of sloppy with your reinforcers, they won't pick it up as quickly. Um, and then it also depends on the length of time the dog actually has to perform without being paid because the longer the length of time, the harder this is going to be in the bigger project it is. So um, competitive obedience. My two sports are agility and obedience. For obedience, I might be in the ring for five-ish minutes. And that's a long time compared to the agility ring that I'm in for 30 seconds. And I think agility people aren't talking about this as much because it's only 30 seconds and most of us, or, you know, 45 seconds or whatever. And most of us can get our dogs to hang out with us and do stuff for us for that length of time without paying them, right? They kind of already are, are doing that and training plenty. Um, I know plenty of dogs are going much longer than that without being paid in training and hanging in there just fine. The agility people who need to be talking about it are the dogs that are checking out and getting sniffy or trying to leave the ring. Those dogs are having a hard time hanging in there with you without being paid. So it's important for agility dogs too. It's just not as prevalent of a problem as it is in obedience where the dog has to work for a long time without being paid. So in obedience, you need to systematically build it up slowly and get up to and then beyond the length of time that the dog is going to be expected to be in the ring working. And then the last factor that is going to weigh in here is literally just your dog's temperament because there are dogs that were bred to work in connection with a person for a very long time. And those dogs are going to be, I'm going to say, more resilient to the, the lack of reinforcers that are available. So I'm thinking dogs that are bred for sports right now. I'm thinking uh, bite, bite work type Belgians. A dog in a, doing a, an obedience routine in Schutzen works for a much, much longer time than a dog in an AKC obedience ring. So the dogs that are bred for that are going to have more stamina 
um, up against that that lack of reinforcement. Versus, you know, you might have a Cairn Terrier who can hunt for rats all day without you, but was not bred to take direction from you for any length of time, let alone five straight minutes. So you've got a bigger project, just plain and simple. All of them are trainable under the same guiding principles, but then they all do show up with their different genetic packages um, that you've got to then reconcile with. So I don't know a whole lot of herding type dogs, border collies in particular, who um, would check out of work because they expected a reinforcer and didn't get it on the first time. It would take several more times for them to say, I'm done with you. Versus, and the way that the dog says, I'm done with you, is also going to vary by temperament. (laughs) And it may be frustrating and it may also be painful. It just depends on who, what, what kind of dog we're talking about again. Um, you know, versus if I had a, let's say a beagle, um, there's a lot of amazing beagles over at uh, Fenzy Dog Sports Academy where I teach my group courses. There are instructors as well as students with phenomenal performance beagles. And it makes me think, oh, one day my life could be good and I could have a beagle. Um, and <laughs> But if I had a beagle that I was prepping to do performance work, I would work really hard on this piece and I would do it early, early, early. Because again, they weren't bred to take direction from humans for a long period of time. Um, and no one to my knowledge is breeding kind of sporty beagles, like beagles that are gonna go do a protection routine in Schutzend, um, to my knowledge. Okay, if that exists, somebody send me a link. But. Anyway, it's so it's going to depend on temperament. It's going to depend on whether or not you've already got a vernacular around your reinforcers. Um, and then it's going to depend on the length of time the dog actually has to work. And I would encourage you to teach the dog to work for longer than they will be expected to in the ring. So right now with Iggy, we are working on, um, we're working on her skills for AKC open level of obedience in kind of separate sessions from working on length of time that we're working. So when I'm working on just working for longer periods of time, I am not picky about anything. I don't make her repeat anything. Um, I just make mental note. So if she's a wide on that about turn, I go, okay, interesting, but I keep doing the pattern. Um, so things like that. And and I, you've got to just keep good records on it to know when to go, when you're ready basically to push for more time. Because when I see nice, crisp, sharp behaviors from her for three straight minutes, that means I'm ready to try for 10 more seconds or 30 more seconds. Whereas if I see sloppiness right around minute two, then we should probably be only going up to about a minute and a half right now. So you do, in order to get there, you do have to pay close attention, take video, keep records, uh, you know, because I've already said it in a podcast that that's very important, but that's that's generally my answer there is you've got to educate them about it and you've got to do it deliberately rather than hoping that they won't figure out that you don't have food on them. Because I don't know about you, but I figured out the hard way that that's just not a thing. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.